This is Eve Lazarus and you're listening to Cold Case Canada. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. In last week's episode, you heard the story of Evangeline Azacon, a seven-year-old girl who's abducted after walking from her school to her home just five blocks away in the South Camby area of Vancouver. Evangeline's disappearance prompted the biggest search in Vancouver's history. Sadly, her body was found exactly two months later in an old abandoned mill site in Port Cowles, an area of Surrey, about 40 kilometres from downtown Vancouver. Two and a half years after Evangeline was abducted, another seven-year-old went missing. This story is based on original research and interviews that I did for my book, Cold Case Vancouver. And just a warning, this episode is about the abduction and murder of a seven-year-old child. It may be tough to listen to. Klaus Busch, 33, and his wife Ingrid, 29, had moved to Vancouver from Germany in 1966. They lived with their two children, Tanya, 7, and Rolfie, 5, in a duplex at the corner of Clark Drive and East 14th Avenue several blocks from the Charles Dickens Elementary School in East Vancouver and just over four kilometres from the Arzakans' home. On Friday, June 2nd, 1972, Tanya Bush dressed for school in a red, white and blue plaid dress, red socks and sandals. Tanya wore a white knit sweater with a Munich Olympics logo on it and carried a red plastic lunch bucket and a school library book called The Happy Lion and the Bear. She left home at 8.25 and walked to school with a friend as she normally did. She stopped a few blocks from her home to take off a cardigan and put a lunchbox and book on the ground. She picked up a lunch but forgot the book. When they got to school, the friends separated and Tanya was seen playing hopscotch in a school playground and a little later on the swing in Sunnyside Park across from the school. School friends later told police that they saw Tanya jump off the swing and they thought that she was crying. They saw her pick up her lunchbox and start to run back in the direction of her house. Likely, Tanya was upset when she realised that she didn't have her library book with her and went back to look for it. Two girls, Elsie 9, a fifth grader at Charles Dickens Elementary, and Nancy 11, who was in the sixth grade, knew Tanya. They saw a man approach her as she crossed 17th Avenue at Inverness, about a block away from the school. They later described him as about six feet tall, with reddish bushy hair and very starey eyes. They thought he was about 25. I'm not sure how good this description was or how accurate. Witness accounts are notoriously unreliable and two young children would have had a hard time determining height or age. 
The newspapers did report that the description that the girls gave sounded like the one that police had of a man who was seen hanging about their school, talking to kids in recent weeks. What was more frightening and believable is that they said that they saw the man talking to Tanya and then they saw him take her by the arm, lead her across the road and shove her into the passenger seat of a small dark car. He then ran to the driver's side, jumped in and drove away. Tanya was a shy, quiet little girl with long blonde hair and blue eyes. She was just four feet six inches tall and weighed in at 85 pounds. She loved to read. She was reported missing at 9.10am, just after roll call, and about 20 minutes after she was last seen. Her parents were called, and Klaus Busch combed the area in his car, while his wife searched on foot. School teachers joined in the search, and police were phoned at 10am. Police apparently didn't take Tanya's disappearance too seriously at first. They told Klaus Busch that they had three reports of missing children already that week and found that two were just plain hooky. Busch says that they told him that if they went into every missing person's case immediately, they'd been doing nothing else. Later that day, when it was obvious that Tanya had been abducted, they started to take things seriously and launched a major investigation. Busch said that because of the nature of his job as a prison guard at the BC Penitentiary, Tanya knew that she had to tell her parents where she was at all times. He, like most prison guards at one time or another, had had threats from inmates. But at that moment, he said, he couldn't think of anyone who had recently got out of jail that had given him any trouble while inside. We'll be back in less than a minute after this message from our sponsor. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history... Then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Deputy Chief Constable Tom Stokes told reporters that the first thing they did after they knew that Tanya had been abducted was to check the field in Port Cal, Surrey, where Evangeline Arzacon's body was found two years earlier. Police used a helicopter to search the beaches, gullies and the hard-to-access areas of Metro Vancouver. Newspapers and radio stations reported Tanya's disappearance and likely with the memory of Evangeline's abduction and murder still fresh in their minds, several hundred volunteers joined in a search that covered almost 40% of Vancouver in house-to-house inquiries over that first weekend. Rewards of $4,500 were posted for information as to Tanya's whereabouts and safe return. The money for the rewards came from the Vancouver Police Commission, staff of the BC Penitentiary and the staff of Masqui Federal Prison, the parent-teachers group at Tanya's school and by anonymous donations. Five days after the official search was called off and nine days after Tanya went missing, 
Her mother, Ingrid Bush, was fired from her job as manager of the Barn Cabaret restaurant on Granville Street in downtown Vancouver. The letter that arrived at her house from her boss said, I have instructed the club's accountant to show you on the payroll at full pay until end of business, Saturday, June 10th, as a compassionate measure. He added that she'd told a reporter that with the stress of having her daughter missing, she wasn't sure if she would be able to go back to work. It seemed like a particularly cruel thing to do to a grieving mother, and her husband told a reporter, The mental strain has been rough enough, but when my wife received this letter, she was quite hysterical. We're certainly going to have to rearrange our finances. Unfortunately, life for the Bush family was about to get much worse. At 10.05 on June 14, 1972, Vancouver Police Detectives Bob Welsh and Nick Lohan were searching through the heavy wooded area at 168th Street and 108th Avenue in Surrey. They came across a badly decomposed body of a young girl. Dental charts confirmed it was Tanya. She'd been found about six kilometres from where Evangeline Arzacon's body had been recovered in 1970. Both Tanya's and Evangeline's dump sites were reached from the same exit of the Trans-Canada Highway. Because of the advanced decomposition of Tanya's body, cause of death was never determined. Because her clothes were all still intact, the pathologist thought that thankfully she'd not been raped. The area had already been heavily searched, but the two Vancouver detectives were following a hunch. They believed that 26-year-old Charles David Gary Head, an inmate of the BC Penitentiary, had murdered Tanya. At the time of her abduction, he was out of jail on a temporary four-day pass and staying at his mother's house in Surrey. The man had a toxic relationship with Klaus Bush and believed that Head had killed his daughter for revenge. The death penalty had been abolished in Canada in 1966, except in the case of the murder of a police officer or prison guard. Bush believed that Head thought that he could get to Bush through the murder of his child, whereas if he had killed Bush himself and been caught, he would have received the death penalty. Capital punishment wasn't completely removed from the Canadian Criminal Code until 1976. Police questioned Head several times in prison. The first time was on June 8th, six days after Tanya was abducted. He told them that he'd been expecting them ever since he heard that Tanya Bush was missing. When asked to account for his movements, he told them that at the time that Tanya went missing, he was visiting his friends Rick and Betty Frick in Surrey, discussing a car deal. He just hadn't bothered to tell the Fricks that. Police dug up the grounds of his mother's house and they searched his well. Most incriminating, Tanya's body had been found less than two-thirds of a kilometre from Head's mother's house, where he was staying. The detectives drew a triangle from Head's mother's house in Surrey to the BC Penitentiary in New Westminster to the spot near Charles Dickens Elementary School, where Tanya was last seen. At 9.31, They left the intersection at 17th and Inverness by the school and drove to Head's mother's house, a distance of about 30 kilometres. The drive took them 27 minutes, travelling at normal speed. 
The detectives continued along a gravel, sawdust and dirt road for about a kilometre, and then they started to walk. Detective Lowen noticed the obvious smell of decaying flesh, but at first he couldn't figure out where it came from. They kept searching along an overgrown trail, surrounded by thick bush, until they came across Tanya's body. The detectives learned that just before noon on the day of Tanya's abduction, Head had presented himself at the gates of the BC Penitentiary in New Westminster, where Tanya's father, Klaus Bush, worked as a prison guard. When they looked into the reason behind Head's prison visit, they found that he'd gone there supposedly to make an appointment to see a psychiatrist in Vancouver later that day. There was no reason that he couldn't have called from home, and police saw this as Head's way of trying to establish an alibi. What they did find interesting, though, was that at the time, Head had a mop of bushy hair, similar to the man in the description that the girls had given of Tanya's abductor. But by the time he returned to prison after his four-day get-out-of-jail-free pass, he'd visited the barber and was wearing short back and sides. Head was charged with the murder of Tanya Bush. What was so shocking was that he had already been declared a dangerous offender and was supposedly serving life in prison. When he was 21, Head sexually assaulted a nine-year-old girl in a gravel pit in the Port Cowles area of Surrey and very near to where Evangeline's body would be found three years later. Head had also attempted to rape another nine-year-old and he had attacked and raped a six-year-old girl, also from Surrey. The attacks were carried out in November and December of 1966. His case went to trial the following year, and that's when he was sentenced to life in prison. At the trial, he was found to be criminally insane and sent to Riverview Mental Hospital. Several weeks later, he was transferred to Ocala Prison. Just five years after the assaults of these three little girls, Head was out of jail on what they called a four-day unsupervised rehabilitation pass from Agassiz Mountain Prison. This was his third pass for the year, and it was still only June. On the day of Tanya's abduction, Head drove his mother in her car, a 1965 Falcon, to the Guildford Shopping Centre, where she caught a ride with a friend to her work at the Hamilton Harvey store in Surrey. Head was last seen driving over the Portman Bridge towards Vancouver. Less than an hour after Tanya disappeared, a woman who lived across the street from his mother's house was outside gardening when she saw Annette Head's car pull into their driveway. She noticed a female passenger in the car and a little later she thought she heard a child crying. She said the crying went on for two or three minutes and came from the direction of Mrs Head's house. The crying stopped when a car door slammed in the same direction from across the street. She said that later, while she was still gardening, she saw the head car leave and go east on 108th Avenue, heading towards 168th Street. This was maybe 20 minutes later. She also mentioned, though, that the female passenger had long dark hair and Tanya was blonde. Forensics found cat hairs in the bedroom of the head house, in the trunk of the car, and on Tanya's clothing. The Bushes did not own a cat. There was also sawdust in the trunk of the head car, which was similar to the sawdust found on the road near the spot where Tanya's body was found. 
The alibi that Head gave was that he was visiting his friends between 8.30am and 9 on June 2nd, the exact time that Tanya was abducted. His alibi quickly broke down, though, when Richard Frick took the stand. Head, he said, arrived around 7 that night and told him that he might be in trouble. He asked Frick to give him an alibi for that time, and Frick refused. When Head's mother heard on the radio that night that a girl was missing from Vancouver, she asked his son where he'd been that morning. Obviously, his mother wasn't prepared to lie for him because she testified in court that he became very upset and said, Oh my God, oh my God, and collapsed. He told her that he had to see someone and that he couldn't tell her why, that she'd be better off if she didn't know. He told his friends Fricks that he needed their alibi because he had been to see a drug dealer who wanted him to help rob a bank, and he was afraid if the authorities found out, he would be sent back to jail. Since he was already in jail, it's hard to see that this would have been a huge problem. Police tracked down the so-called drug dealer, who testified in court and admitted to a long criminal record, but told the court that he'd never seen or heard of Head before. Head had been found guilty of rape in May 1967 and declared a dangerous offender six months later. He should have been either in prison or in Riverview Mental Hospital. In 1969, when Evangeline Arzacon was abducted, raped and murdered, the prison records were in such a mess and the penal system was so lax and corrupt that police and prosecutors could never determine whether he really was locked up. An RCMP officer told me that during that time period, he was talking about the 1960s and 70s, that guards were frequently bribed by prisoners and their families, and they often lied. The defence successfully argued that Head would not get a fair trial in Vancouver, and the proceedings were moved to Quesnel in northern BC, about 660 kilometres from Vancouver. Lorraine Shaw was a general assignment reporter at the Vancouver Sun. She'd covered Evangeline Arzacon's disappearance and murder for the newspaper, and she was sent up to cover Head's trial. When I interviewed Lorraine for my book Cold Case Vancouver in 2015, she said that the thing that she remembered most clearly was that the jury had been sequestered for the duration of Head's trial, and they were staying at the Billy Barker Inn in Quesnel. It was where Lorraine was staying, along with all the other reporters who were covering the trial, that was receiving national attention, was also where Tanya Bush's family and Gary Head's mother were staying. It became too much for the judge who was also staying at the inn. Thomas Berger, she said, a one-time leader of the NDP and a legend in legal circles, started eating all his meals in his room. The five-day trial had moments of theatre, with testimony of prison brutality and of revenge, perjury, alibis that fell apart, and stories of concocted testimony from convicts who hated the police, the penal system, and sex criminals who resided there with them. Head was convicted solely on circumstantial evidence. He was a convicted rapist and pedophile, already supposedly in prison for life, and his guilt would have surprised no one. On the other hand, there are a few holes in the prosecution's case, 
and it was far from a slam dunk. As Lorraine Shaw points out, three of the witnesses who testified against Head were inmates. Each one testified that Head had told them that he had murdered Tanya Bush because of his hatred of Klaus Bush. Later, all three recanted their testimonies. One said his evidence was a complete fabrication. Another told a newspaper editor that he'd made up the testimony against Head because he hated child molesters. The third prisoner just kept changing his story. In the end, Lorraine says no one believed anything that they said. Lorraine, who left the newspaper to become a lawyer, says that while the evidence against Head was circumstantial, she felt that the prosecutor, Lee Skip, did a thorough job of tying it all together for the jury. He said that there are so many pieces of circumstantial evidence that it becomes more than just circumstantial. There are just too many coincidences. And I agree, I think he was right. But it sounds as if Defence Counsel Raymond Paris was almost as convincing. He argued unsuccessfully as it turned out that there were several concerns. The two young girls who witnessed Tanya's abduction said that the man they saw looked like a man who'd been hanging around the school talking to the kids. Head had bad eyesight and he wore thick glasses and the man who abducted Tanya apparently did not. Head was also not identified in a lineup. It wasn't enough to raise reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. Even though they were not told of the reason for his current jail sentence or of his prior convictions as a pedophile, it took the 12 men less than three hours to find him guilty anyway. Klaus Bush had no doubt that Head was responsible for his daughter's murder. After Head's sentencing, Bush told a reporter that he believed that Head had coldly and calculatedly murdered his daughter. He said that he believed that Head's conviction and incarceration had saved the life of his then six-year-old son, Ralphie. As it should have, the case caused an uproar in the House of Commons after it was made public that Head was a suspect in Tanya's murder. Former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker demanded a Royal Commission investigation into the temporary passes for sex offenders receiving unsupervised visits out of jail. On June 28, 1972, Solicitor General Jean-Pierre Goyer went on television to announce that the temporary leave program for prisoners convicted of sexual offences would be terminated. He said that in the four years that the program had been running, 25 sexual offenders had been given leaves on 330 different occasions without any major incidents. Now, I noticed that he didn't mention what the minor incidents were, and he heartily defended the program. He said the program was only being cancelled because of public pressure. Generally speaking, he said, this program had been highly successful and added, we goof sometimes. Tanya was cremated and buried in a quiet family ceremony at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Burnaby. Charles David Gary Head died of natural causes at the Regional Psychiatric Centre in Saskatoon on March 7, 2013. He was 66 years old. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Did Head murder Evangeline Azacon two years earlier? Police certainly suspect that he did, 
but they lacked the evidence to prove it. And prison records were in such bad shape that it was impossible to tell. Evangeline's murder happened 25 years before DNA became a forensics game changer. But even if evidence had been collected from the crime scene, it's unlikely that anything would have survived two months outside in those elements. When I wrote Cold Case Vancouver in 2015, I'd linked together the murders of three seven-year-old girls. The first one was Nancy Johnson, one of ten children who lived on a cucumber farm in Cloverdale, an area of Surrey. Nancy was taken from the front porch in November 1967, almost exactly two years before Evangeline was kidnapped in Vancouver. Her body was found on the family's farm, which was in the same general vicinity where the bodies of Evangeline and Tanya were eventually discovered. I've included a map of where the bodies were found, as well as photos of the three girls, in my show notes. Since Cold Case Vancouver's publication, new evidence has come to light about Nancy Johnson's murder, and I'm hoping to get into this very sad, complex murder in a future episode. If you have any information on Evangeline Arzacon or Nancy Johnson's still unsolved murders, please contact the Surrey RCMP at 604-599-0502, or if you want to stay anonymous, call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477, or go onto the website solvecrime.ca. This story is based on original research that I did for my book Cold Case Vancouver. If you would like to order Cold Case Vancouver or my new book, Cold Case BC, my publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press, is offering a 20% discount to my podcast listeners. Just go to the website, arsenalpulp.com, and use the promo code COLDCASE when you check out. That's one word, COLDCASE. And if you would like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada.